Open your Bibles to the 15th chapter of Acts, if you've got your Bible with you. And there's an outline in your bulletin. You folks are all familiar, are you not, with the mile marker signs along H1? Or did you even notice them? I mean, they're there, and uh, they're all across America on the highways there. They were also in the Roman Empire along the roads that the Romans built. They called them milestones because they were made of marble or granite or whatever local stone they could come up with. And then, as now, milestones were there to reassure travelers that they're along the right route and that they um, tell them how many miles they've come and how many miles they've got to go. I looked up the definition of milestone, and there are a couple different definitions, and they're really different. First one is a stone set up beside a road to mark the distance in miles to a particular place. But the second one is the one I want to call your attention to. An action or event marking a significant change or stage in development. It's that definition that I took for the title of my message from because we're going to see some milestones in Acts chapter 15 and following. We began last week a three-part series of messages called Mission Accomplished. And I've been talking about the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. We did his first missionary journey last week. We'll do our second today and then the third next week. And I also mentioned that... uh, I want to, I just believe the Lord has put it on my heart last few months, and the elders have really affirmed this, that we, we want to honor our long-term faithful missionaries that we've partnered with in this church. And there are a lot of them. There are more than these, but these in particular, I mean, have served in partnership with us in various parts of the world for decades. And I shared how the elders had said, yes, we, we can take uh, receive an aloha offering at the end of June to send these folks with the team that we're planning to send to Israel and Jordan uh, at, well, in November. And that's a good sum of money, uh, about $40,000 almost. And uh, so it, it would take a real move of the Holy Spirit in our midst to raise that kind of money for these folks. But I think it'd be a wonderful way to honor them because... They are all at or near the end of their missionary careers. And it's the end of an era of missions at Kamaki Christian, beginning of a new one. Well, last week I shared some parallels between the first missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas took with the missionaries that we support in Indonesia and have for decades. And that would be on the lower left, Rama and her husband Ken had gone with her Uh, over 25 years ago. He passed away during their time there. She's still there, laboring faithfully. And then top left, I call them Jack and Jill, and uh, they have been there in Indonesia. They'll complete 40 years next July when they transition. So how can we honor them? Well, I thought this would be a very special way to do, do so. This weekend, as we look at Paul's second missionary journey, I want us to see the amazing milestones that are represented in these chapters in the book of Acts. Actions and events which marked significant change and stages of development in the mission that Christ has assigned to his disciples. 
specifically milestones that were crossed leading up to and encompassing that second missionary journey. A lot of milestones that uh, were crossed there along the way. And in fact, these milestones show how the door was opened for the gospel to go global beyond the borders of Judea. So this weekend, as we consider Paul's missionary journey, his second one, I want us to look at David and Marcia Van Wagenen's missionary journey as well. They went out from this church 32 and a half years ago, and they went to Africa, where they served for 30 years, and then they came back here two and a half years ago. As many of you know, you know them, because they have volunteered in so many ways. David has led short-term mission trips out of here. Uh, they've ministered with our international ministry. And now David, after Pastor Cal's retirement, has stepped in to serve as the Ohana Group's director. And so they've just served here after they've returned from 30 years in Africa. So now I want us to consider the milestones which transformed Christianity into a small Jewish sect to become the largest religion on the planet. The first principle is in your bulletin. Here it is. The gospel goes global when the message of grace is loosed from legalism. Let's return for just a moment to when the first missionary journey was completed. Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch in Syria, the church that had sent them out, and they tell them what God's done. They didn't talk about all the bad stuff. At least it's not reported there in Scripture. I'm sure they did. But the highlight was how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Wow, they were talking to Jews here in, in Antioch primarily. And uh, they're saying God opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And there was great rejoicing in the church. However, some of the Jews there who had a Pharisaical background said, now, now wait a minute, Paul. You did tell those Gentiles out there, didn't you, that they are under the law of Moses and they have to keep the law and that all the males have to be circumcised? And uh, no, they hadn't told them that. What? Well, understandably, these Pharisees thought that would be pretty important because the Jews had lived under the law of Moses for 1,500 years. Are you going to depart from that and just let them go free? Go easy on these Gentiles? I mean, that was controversial, and it caused all kinds of discussion to the point where they said, we've got to let the church in Jerusalem settle this. So they sent Paul and Barnabas and a delegation up to talk with the apostles and the leaders in that church in Jerusalem to resolve it. So they had a meeting recorded in the chapter 15 of the book of Acts, and it was heated. There, were, there was all kinds of debate going on. And then it says in verse 7, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. That's when he had gone to the household of Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, a Gentile household, and preached, and they got saved. He continues, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts 
by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. James then got up, and uh, he agreed with Peter, and he said, I, I, he's right. I mean, I'm making up these comments because they're not in Scripture, but in essence, we know he said, he's right. Uh, and he said, but we need to add some conditions in this letter to make sure that the Gentiles don't offend the Jews in their community by these practices. And so they constructed this letter, and they said to Paul and Barnabas, take it back to the churches that you've planted up there in Asia Minor. So they're getting ready to go, and Barnabas says to Paul, now what about Mark? And that was his cousin. And Paul says, in essence, are you kidding? I mean, Mark is the one who bailed out on us in the first place, and on that first trip, and he went back to Jerusalem. I'm not taking a quitter along. And uh, again, you're not going to find that in Scripture, but that's basically what he had to tell him. And so Barnabas said, well, then I'm taking my cousin John Mark, and we're going to Cyprus. And Paul said, okay, and he took Silas and Luke and some others, and they headed back toward Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. Now, Scripture is really honest in everything, and, and even about this conflict uh, between these two guys. I mean, Paul was such a driven guy, and Barnabas had such a heart of compassion, and, and uh, they, they split. And it took some years, but they eventually reconciled that whole situation, Paul embraced Mark again and acknowledged his usefulness to the ministry. But uh, that happens a lot. But God is able to use even our you know, foibles and our fallacies and our mistakes. And what happened here is it doubled the missionary team. Now we have two teams instead of one. Well, Paul and Silas and their team, they head north and they take that letter up there and uh, return to visit to those churches. But I want to tell you something. The letter that they took was huge. If that letter instead had said, sorry, we forgot to tell you that you folks are under the law of Moses, it would have crushed those people. We probably would never have heard of the gospel. It would have remained a small Jewish sect there in Judea, but instead it was able to become universal telling peoples of all nations and tribes and tongues and peoples that uh, the good news is that we can't keep the law, but somebody did, and that was Jesus. And that was Peter's point. He said, why would we put on those people something we have not been able to keep ourselves? And so it's by the grace of God that Christ came into the world, and it's through our faith in him and what he accomplished that we find salvation. That's the message the world needed to hear and the world responds to instead of, guess what? You've got to keep 613 laws. Uh, yeah, that wouldn't have worked because we can't. But he did, and that makes it good news. The gospel goes global when it's loosed from legalism. I asked David Van Wagenen this week, I said, did you see any illustrations of that in your ministry in Africa? He said, oh, yeah. He said, when uh, we went to Kenya, uh, in fact, David in Kenya was the liaison and administrator of 26 families, missionary families, 
that were working out in the bush with Turkana and Maasai tribes people. These are nomadic, nomadic tribes peoples. So David's in Nairobi, he and Marcia, and he's corresponding and going out and servicing all those missionary families. Well, when Christian Missionary Fellowship, and that's whom they served with, uh, went into Kenya, the government wouldn't let any other agencies in. They wouldn't let CMF in there either. But African Inland Church had been there for a long, long time. And so they had authority from the government to operate there. So CMF, Christian Missionary Fellowship, worked with the African Inland Church, came under their auspices, and they said, yeah, we, we need help you know, here uh, in Kenya. But they said, we have our own constitution, and you have to abide by that, and we got lots of rules here that you have to follow. A lot of those rules really weren't biblical. But, you know, they weren't necessarily anti-scriptural, but they just weren't biblical. And that happens, by the way, with organizations and churches and even individual Christians. The longer we are around, we develop all these man-made rules and regulations that have nothing to do with scripture, and the African Inland Church had those. And one of them was, well, you have to be ordained by the African Inland Church to baptize someone. Dr. Bob Chapman is out there in the bush with the Maasai tribes, or excuse me, the Turkana tribes people, and here's a man who is on his deathbed, and he wants to be baptized. What's he going to do? He baptized him. But when word got back to the African Inland Church, they couldn't believe he would actually do that, and they sanctioned him for baptizing this man on his deathbed and told him he couldn't be a missionary for two years. Really? That's when man's rules trump God's word. That's called legalism. It's okay for us as believers to develop certain disciplines and practices that we want to do to honor the Lord that aren't set forth in Scripture. But then when we take those rules uh, that we want to, to uh, abide by and impose those on others, that becomes legalism. And so the gospel goes global or it goes across a community or an office or family when it's loosed from legalism, our rules and regulations not set forth in Scripture. Second principle is the gospel goes global when the messengers respond to the Spirit's leading, crossing boundaries to share with people culturally distant. It says that Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tr tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace and the next day on to Neapolis. Those are some interesting phrases. That the Spirit... Kept, they were kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching in Asia Minor. 
And then it says the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to enter that particular province. Kept hemming them in, pushing them toward the coast. How did that happen? Well, it could have been circumstantial. It's like maybe they couldn't get a visa into that province. It doesn't say. One thing or another, there were doors closed to them. Or maybe it was inner promptings of the Holy Spirit that they just weren't to go here, but they were to go this direction. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've had those. Where you were going a different direction, a certain direction, and all of a sudden the Spirit's just, you have an uneasiness like you're to go this direction. I had that happen yesterday. Sitting there talking with someone and the Spirit just prompted me, I needed to share the Lord with this fella. The Spirit does speak to us in those kinds of ways. That was what was happening in some way to Paul and his team here until they get to Troas and then he has that vision and he realizes, wow, they all realize we're supposed to cross this strait and go over to Macedonia, modern day Europe. Well, I'll show you a quick map here of this second missionary journey. It's on your uh, bulletin cover. But they left from Antioch up there in Syria. They'd gone up where they'd previously ministered. They even went to Derby and Lystra where Paul had been stoned and left for dead to strengthen the churches they'd established up there. They go on up into this province of Asia and then to Troas. And that's where Paul has what we call the vision of the Macedonian call. And uh, they go over to Philippi, the port city, and then chapters 16 through 18 record all the amazing events and places they went, people they talked to, all the way down to where they finally come to Athens and Corinth before coming back to Ephesus, sailing back to Palestine, and then finally making their way back up to Antioch, where they had sailed from in the beginning. Well, David and Marcia Van Wagenen, I mean, 30 years, they came back several times, but their missionary journey in Africa was a leading of the Spirit as well. I asked David this week, how did the Spirit of God lead you to even go as missionaries? Because they had a comfortable job. Uh, we knew them in Salt Lake City in the 70s. And they left in the mid-70s, came to Honolulu where he... Uh, was an agent with Western Airlines out at the airport in those days. And um, then he became the chairman of the missions committee here at Kaimuki Christian Church. They served in this church for a number of years. Uh, during that time, he told me this way back in the 80s, uh, God just began to put it on their heart, the importance of missions and getting the gospel out to the ends of the earth. So they started giving sacrificially to missionary work beyond their giving here at KCC. And I thought at the time, I thought, well, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And that happened with David and Marcia. They just started putting their treasure into missions, and God gave them a heart for missions. And so then he was invited to become a board member with Christian Missionary Fellowship in Indonesia. So as he was chairman of the board here of missions, he would fly back there for board meetings with CMF. Well, after a time, they were transferred in 1982 to Montana, where he was working in Missoula and Kalispell with Western Airlines. And he told his wife, Marcia, 
I just have a strange feeling that the Lord is trying to tell us something. And Marcia said, me too. Well, that afternoon, David said there was a moody broadcast out of Chicago. Um, and on that broadcast, uh, Elizabeth Elliot was speaking. Now, some of you know that name. She was the wife of Jim Elliot, who, along with four of his buddies, were killed in Ecuador back in 1955 by the Alka Indian tribe. Well, Elizabeth and another one of those widows went back, and God used them in an amazing way to reach that tribe that had slain their husbands, and that whole tribe became a missionary tribe. I get chicken skin thinking about it. Through Gates of Splendor tells the story beautifully. But Elizabeth went on just to become an amazing, godly, missionary woman. And I once heard her speak over at International College in the 80s. Well, she was on the radio that afternoon, and then they had a call-in segment. And David said, I called in. I said, did you get through? He said, oh, yeah, I was the first one up. And he said, I asked her, Elizabeth, how do you know God's will if he's trying to tell you something? He said, I'll never forget her answer. She said, well, if you're asking God to show you his will so you can decide if you want to do it, you're not going to be hearing from him. But if you make a commitment to do what he shows you to do, whatever it is, he'll reveal that to you. David said, we got down on our knees in that unfurnished home in Missoula that day and prayed and said, God, we'll do whatever you want us to do. You just show us. He said a couple of days later, Ray Giles from Christian Missionary Fellowship called him and said, David, we need you and Marcia in Africa. Okay, there you go. And that was the spirits leading in their life. But I believe that principle is so important for you and for me, is that if we'll make a commitment, then he'll show us what his will is. Well, let's take a look in just a quick video uh, of the missionary journey of David and Marcia. So they were in Montana, but I'm going to take them out of Honolulu in 1984, 1985, I guess it was, and all the way around the globe to Nairobi, Kenya, where he served as administrator for those teams out with the Trakana and Maasai tribes people. From there, they go on up to Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. He's the team leader there. They're training pastors and working with the team there. And then they go over to Eritrea in uh, that nation up there and served for a period of time. But the communists kicked them out of the country, and they had to go back to Ethiopia, and they stayed there for a number of years until finally, two and a half years ago, they come back to Honolulu and minister with us. But 30 years, and that was the leading of the Spirit in so many ways in their lives. Well, let's look at one more principle. And that is the gospel goes global when the messengers persevere in the face of persecution, shaping the message to fit their audience. Well, I want to talk first about this blur of missionary activity that took place in chapters 16 through 18 of the book of Acts. I mean, everywhere they went, 
They were harassed. There were rebellious Jews who didn't like their message. It would drive them out of one town to the next. I mean, they were uh, continually persecuted. And the people that they were speaking to received a brunt of that persecution as well. In fact, by the time they got to Corinth, um, one of the men there, Justice, who had been an official in the synagogue, he was beaten severely uh, because he had received this message that Paul and Silas and the team had brought to them. You know, um, I talked to David about the persecution that they'd seen in Africa, and he went right to Eritrea in particular. And he said they were training these pastors in small groups, how to have small group ministries in their church, because these pastors believed that with the ascendancy of communism that the church would soon be outlawed, and it was. They closed all the Protestant churches in about 2003, and uh, they arrested 2,000 Christians. And they took the pastors, about 40 pastors, and put them in prison. But it wasn't a prison like OCCC or Halava. I mean, they didn't have those kind of facilities. They put them in shipping containers, and they closed those doors, and they'd open them once in a while and throw in some food and water. And they kept them for months in those hot shipping containers. Uh, and some of the folks that were imprisoned are still in prison to this day, all these years later. And so persecution was something that Paul and Silas and their team dealt with. But everywhere the gospel goes, there are people that pay a high price. And that's part of what it means to follow Jesus. And sometimes we think we're suffering, and sometimes we are, but we need to see it in perspective. And Jesus said that the reward of those who suffer for his sake will be great in heaven. And I thank the Lord for that. That's one parallel. But there's another. When you think of the people that Paul and Silas encountered, what a diverse group of people. I mean, from the Jews that they'd go into the synagogues and speak to, to Lydia out there on the banks of the river in a Jewish prayer meeting, to the Philippian jailer who didn't know anything about the God that Paul would tell him about, to, well, Mars Hill in Athens. Because when they got to Athens, Paul had gotten there a little bit early, and he noticed all the idols in the city, and that really bothered him as a Jewish man, because they knew there was only one true God. And so he's talking to people in the synagogues, and then he's talking to them in the marketplace. And some philosophers overhear him. These are Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And they say, well, come on with us up to Mars Hill, because we like to talk about all kinds of different things, philosophers up there. So he goes up there. He's introduced, and they said, well, have at it, Paul. Tell us what you got. It says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar within this inscription, to an unknown God. I mean, they wanted to cover all their bases. They believed in lots of gods. They didn't want to miss anyone and offend any god. He says, Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. They may have thought that was a little arrogant. But he continued and said, 
The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. There were temples all over Athens. And then he says, and not only that, he isn't even served by human hands as if he needs anything from people. In fact, he's the one that created heaven and earth and everyone in it, and he gives life and breath, and he continues to share with them until he finally says, he's the one who has appointed a man who will one day come back and judge the world in righteousness. This man whom he raised from the dead. And when he got to that point in the sermon, they'd had enough. I mean, they started mocking him and sneering at this kind of a thought of being raised from the dead. A few of them believed, but many didn't. But here's my point. Paul took this same gospel, but he shaped it differently according to who he was speaking to. So it would fit the needs of the hearers. He didn't compromise the gospel, he didn't change it, but he had the wisdom to speak to where people were at. When he would go into those synagogues, he would talk about the prophecies of the prophets in the Hebrew Scriptures and how Jesus the Messiah fulfilled those prophecies. If he'd have tried that with the Philippian jailer, he'd have just looked at him with a blank stare. If he'd have tried that on Mars Hill, they didn't know those Hebrew Scriptures. He started with them by talking about creation and the God who made everything. And that is called a mission principle of identifying with your culture. When the uh, missionaries came to the islands here in the 1840s, wow, back then, missions has grown up a lot since then. They were wonderful and heroic people, but they tended to impose their culture on the local culture. That happened a lot during that era. But since then, we've learned that, oh no, there's good in every culture. And some things that aren't good, just like in our own culture. And missionaries now, like with Christian Missionary Fellowship, go in, they have a year of language acquisition and cultural training to understand the culture of the local people, to affirm that which is good, and then to bring Christ into that. So David told me, when Phil and Gwen Hudson went out among the Maasai people, um, well, in fact, got a picture of a Maasai village here. Those of us that have been to Africa have seen those. And cattle are their treasure. And there's, not, there's no trees nearby that could make for building materials. Those are mostly built of cow dung. And if you've been in those villages, you, and they bring the cows all into the middle of the village, and I, you can't believe the smell and the flies, okay? And you've seen those pictures with little kids with flies all over them. Well, Phil and Gwen wanted to connect with these people, so they asked if they could come and live with them. So Lamari and his three wives invited them to come live with them in their hut, and they did for a year. And after a year, Lamari, who had been very resistant to the gospel, he wanted to hear what they had to say. He heard it, he believed, and he received Christ, as did his wives and that whole family and the tribe, you know, that whole village then was enlightened with the gospel. But because Phil and Gwen had been willing to absorb their culture and become part of it, they were willing to hear about their culture and Christ, who is supracultural. That's what we need to understand. 
as missionaries, because all of us as followers of Christ are called to be missionaries. Not necessarily to Africa, but certainly in our families, where we work, uh, in our communities. And what we need to understand is every person we talk to is probably in a different place. We're crossing some kind of a boundary. Uh, And some person who is an agnostic doesn't believe in God, we're not going to start with the cross. We need to start with uh, the creation and talk about the existence of God and why we believe that and, and learn a few things about why they might want to consider a creator, a designer of this universe. If we're talking with someone who has been hurt by the church, maybe uh, grew up in a legalistic church or a really liberal church that didn't even believe, then we need to start there. If we're talking to someone who uh, is really hurt emotionally or had great loss, we need to speak to that person's need because wherever anyone is, uh, Christ is the answer to that need and the gospel is what that person's needs, the good news that brings them to the cross. But we have to be wise enough to start where they're at. And that's what Paul and Silas did. And that's what Phil and Gwen Hudson did there in that uh, Maasai village. These are principles. These are parallels that show us the significant events that became milestones in the missionary journey of Paul and Silas and in David and Marcia. So let me wrap this up by saying... We looked last week at Jack and Jill and Rama in Indonesia, David and Marcia in Africa for 30 years. Next week we'll look at Hal and Lana and uh, Jack and Mahi uh, who were out there for so many decades. But these people sacrificed to serve. Now they wouldn't consider it a sacrifice, but they left home, they left family, they served just wonderfully to see so many people come to Christ and we partnered with them in that. But I just believe at this point in their lives, it would honor them and it would glorify the Lord if we sacrificed to share with them so we can bring them together and send them on this trip to Israel and Jordan. As I mentioned last week, when I sent that email out to them with the possibility, none of them have been there. And they are so thrilled about the possibility. So pray about what the Lord would have you to give in that offering in a couple weeks. Don't feel any pressure to give. I really mean that. Um, You don't have to give anything and you don't have to feel guilty if you don't give anything. That's okay. This is a free will offering. This is an offering for just those that the Lord puts it on our hearts to give. But if we give, let's give not what we regularly give, but beyond our normal giving because we need to carry on the ministry of the church and all that is happening here and beyond. Let's pray about it. Let's see what God does. Please bow with me now. Lord, thank you for faithful servants who inspire us. Thank you that the gospel did go global and that your Holy Spirit orchestrated that so we could hear and believe and so we could become missionaries as well. And I do pray that it would be your spirit that would speak to us in these coming weeks about what you want to do in this offering and for these servants of yours. And one more thing, Lord, I would like to pray for anyone here this morning who has yet to receive this wonderful gift 
of forgiveness and your presence and the promise of life that lasts forever. That they would really understand your grace, your mercy that would bring your son into this world who would suffer and die, that we might believe and that that faith would bring us this new life. I pray this would be the day that he or she would say yes and be reconciled on Father's Day to you, the Father of all fathers, the Heavenly Father. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.